for you out there who are tuning into the podcast. We edit it down and give you a chance to listen to the guests that we had on. Um, it's just a chance to give everyone an access point. Some people aren't morning people, some people are busy in the morning and you just can't be next door radio. So this is the next best thing, if not the best thing, who knows? Uh, and we spoke to a number of people on the uh, on the program this morning. Diverse variety of views as we always have and topics as we always have, uh, including Kate Aubrey, who is uh, a former co-host of the Wednesday Breakfast program, who moved up to South Coast New South Wales, uh, around the Bega Valley region, uh, and recently experienced some pretty serious fires that took out a number of homes luckily nobody was um was injured uh and that was the that was a good thing but i think about 60 to 80 homes were lost yeah, uh, very sad. in, and in the beachside town of tarthra and it sounded like kate had a bit of a trial run in case something happens mm. in the future then they learned about making she, sure you have a chainsaw that's yeah so stay tuned for all you out there who live near the fire areas and she was also touching on a bit of community spirit that pulled together and made her feel reassured about where she does live and the community that exists there yes for sure and that's towards the end but at the beginning we have a great piece by hannah darlin coming up about intervention in um in births in births yeah in yeah. births and in the health long-term and short-term health effects Yes, and it was in low risk, um, low risk women um, intervention there. So just stay tuned to that. There was a recent study coming out there, and then we moved on to David Shearman um, talking about the new regulatory bodies that are going to be moving in, hopefully, to regulate the environmental impacts on air polluters and water polluters across uh, across yes, the board and, here in Australia. And- and continuing that theme of environment, we spoke to Professor Tony Babington, who talked quite a bit about the impact of extractive industries and uh, the need to conserve water and moves to take away Indigenous lands in Latin America, in Indonesia, but also we're seeing similar patterns in Australia. So do listen in. Uh, Fiona Patton, member for the Legislative Council uh, and also the leader of the Reason Party uh, in Victoria, tabled uh, uh, the report into the inquiry into drug law reform uh, yesterday and she joined us on the program this morning to talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, and that's a, that's a huge project and, and really interesting, strong research that went into that. And uh, then we spoke to Dr. Sharon McLennan from um, Mass University about Cuban doctors and their work in the Pacific in particular, but also internationally. Huge numbers of Cuban doctors providing health services. It's a big thing in Cuba and it's great to hear that coming from there and a bit of pride in their work. Yes, and... Um, Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing more about that research. Mm, I hope you enjoy the show and we'll be back next week. You're tuned in to Wednesday Breakfast. We're heading for a warm day this lovely Wednesday. Feels warm outside already. It It is. is, And it's the 28th of March, moving right along. We are, skidding right along into Easter. But up now we have Hannah Darlin on the line, Professor of Midwifery in the School of Nursing and Midwifery at the University of Western Sydney. She is no stranger to the Wednesday Breakfast program. Some of you out there who listen in. May have heard her in the mid to late 2017 year of programming. Um, but her latest ar- article co-authored with Lillian Peters, How Birth Intervention Affects Babies' Health in the Short and Long Term, um, has brought her back into the breakfast spread. How are you today, Hannah? Good morning. Thanks for having me. 
Uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for being with us. I understand you're driving off over to Adelaide today. I am indeed. <laughs> Appreciate being up early here and giving us a bit of your time, your pre-prep time. My pleasure. Um, I was hoping you could start off by telling us a little bit um, how the study how the study was published and what it's working off, what, what facts and figures it's really calling upon. Sure. Well, a, l- a little bit of background. We uh, published a hypothesis in 2012 with an international team called the EPIC Hypothesis, which was a, a hypothesis we wanted to go on and test. Uh, and that hypothesis was that actually the process of labour and birth are key in creating a healthy epigenetic response so that the, the stress, the normal stress of labour and birth, actually is switching on an expression on a communication with our genes that re- leads to a normal healthy response. Too much stress is affecting that and silencing some genes, as is too little stress. So that was kind of the premise behind this, and we set out to look at uh, around 500,000 healthy women with no medical complications, very low risk, and their children uh, who'd give, you know, be born in New South Wales between 2000-2013. And we looked at whether you had a spontaneous onset of labour, that means no induction, that your labour progressed without needing to speed that labour up, and you birthed your baby without needing forceps or vacuum or caesarean. And we compared that to women who had all of these different types of interventions. So there's about six groups we compared. And then we looked at the health of the baby in the first five, first 28 days and then in the first five years. And that's when we came across some really interesting findings. Mm. And what did you come across there? What were the findings? Well, we found that in the short term, babies who were born by an instrument of birth, which means forceps or vacuum, following an induction or a speeding up of the labour, had the, the highest risk of jaundice. That's a jaundice requiring medical treatment. So this is when the, you get a yellowing of the skin because there's a breakdown in blood cells that occurs. And it can be quite serious. Babies need to go under phototherapy. So it takes them away from their mothers and that really important early time that we know now is critical in infant development. They also had more feeding problems. And then babies born by cesarean had higher rates of being needing treatment for being cold. Um, following birth. So that was the short term, which, you know, uh, some of that is really explainable. We can understand why that happens. But in the long term, there's, there's things that are more mysterious to us. So, for example, children born by emergency cesarean have the highest rates of um, diabetes, um, blood sugar problems and obesity in by, by the fifth year. And then when we compared having a completely spontaneous birth with no medical or surgical intervention, we found that all the other modes of birth led to higher rates of uh, infections to do with respiratory infections. That's things like bronchitis, pneumonia, admissions to hospital, then more metabolic disorders, that's diabetes, obesity, blood sugar problems, and eczema. And these were highest amongst all the children who experienced any form of intervention. But if you look at the odds ratio, they escalate more and more until cesarean section is the highest. Mm. And can you just break down that study again and tell us where those um, figures are coming from? How many participants were um, looked upon to call this up? So we looked at every single woman who gave birth in New South Wales between 2000 and 2008 
and that's routine collected data. And we used four data sets. So we used the data um, when every woman has a baby, there's a particular data set kept that has all routine collected data. We also looked at the data set that's kept on anyone admitted to a hospital anywhere in New South Wales. We also looked at the Australian Bureau of Statistics and the deaths, births, deaths and marriages. And going through this very, very um, special procedure through New South Wales Health, what happens is they then link those four data sets, they de-identify them, so there's no way that I can tell who anyone is, which is really important for confidentiality. But what that then gives us is millions and millions of variables to look at mm. and to double-check that one data set saying the same as another data set. And taking that data set, we then only looked at low-risk women. So we eliminated more than half the population because what we wanted to show is, you know, many people have interventions for very good reasons and they're life-saving, and I want to really make that clear point. But what we wanted to look at is where we think the intervention rate is becoming too high in women who are of low risk and don't need that level of intervention. So we took only that group and that left us with around 500,000 low healthy risk women. Mm. And do we know the percentage on people experiencing intervention at birth in Australia? Like so that maybe even is there specifics on that cohort that you can guesstimate who are low risk women? Yeah, we know exactly um, what is going on in, in the intervention. So one in three women are having cesarean sections in Australia. We're one of the highest in the OECD. Around one in two women are being induced to having their labour sped up. We published a study in 2014 where we again looked at a low-risk cohort and we looked at how many women were having nothing done to them. And that was sitting at around 10% if you went to a private hospital and it was around 15% if you went to a public, were not having anything done to them. And these were the lowest of the low-risk women. So all of the excuses about women being older and larger and sicker, and, you know, we seem to rattle these off and blame women, actually do not hold up anymore. Because when you look at the 20-year-olds, interventions going up. When you look at the 30-year-olds, interventions going up. So there's something going on in our systems and if you look at this low risk cohort we just looked at you've still got 43 percent being induced prior to labor or getting their labors sped up you've got 38 percent having a normal birth without medical intervention uh, and you've got around 18 percent having a cesarean section in a very low risk cohort mm -hmm. So what are, the, what are some of the ways from this study that you look to reduce that low risk intervention so we know now from high-level evidence, so we're talking about a systematic review, and a systematic review pulls together the best evidence from randomized controlled trials, which we know is the highest standard in science. And it synthesizes the outcomes, and it comes up with you know some, some statistical analysis. So we know from one that is on continuity of midwifery care with 17,000 women involved in about 15 randomized controlled trials, but if you have a midwife you know through the pregnancy and that same midwife is the one who is your midwife at birth and then postnatally, we know those women have less intervention, they have more satisfaction, they have greater breastfeeding rates, they lose fewer babies and it is cost effective. And yet in this country, less than 8% of women can access that. So we, we, re and we really know, and the WHO has only come out two weeks ago and said, 
women must access continuity midwifery care. If continuity midwifery care was a medication, the pharmaceutical companies would be making a killing. But unfortunately, it's caught within political and gendered issues. So having a midwife you know and forming relationships of trust is probably the most powerful way to end up reducing intervention and also having safe and satisfying birth outcomes. Uh, that is important and I hear that there is a lot happening in the hospitals at the moment with um, trying to get a bit more continuity of care. Nick over here just was in the... Um, Cosmos program. Cosmos. Oh, sorry. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, my partner um, and I, we, uh, well, she had the baby, but I was... I participated um, in uh, in January, and it was a very it was our second child, and quite a different experience to our first, who was an emergency uh, C section. We didn't have that continuity of care, and um, I think that was that was one of the biggest headaches for us. We're pulling our hair out because you just don't you're having to explain things to people all the time, but they're having to work off uh, a set of numbers and figures, and you sort of become that to them because uh, they're going to disappear in six hours, whatever, and they've got to go and do something else. State they might, um, yeah. I'm not saying they don't care, but it's they're not able to give you what you need in that time. But through the Cosmos program, and we also had a um, which is a special program at the Royal Melbourne uh, Royal Women's Hospital, I should say, a special program they do uh, to to try and get some more facts and figures on on certain kinds of births. Uh, but um, we also uh, hired a like a private midwife, a, mm. a doula. I can't remember what we didn't call her a doula. I can't remember what she was called, but that was also very helpful because she yeah. was there the whole time as well. And sort of, it was sort of like having a lawyer uh, in the hospital. <laughs> I guess it's like having somebody that knows the inner workings of the system, so that you don't get screwed over by it. That's what it felt like. Absolutely, and the Cosmos program, of course, became published couple of years ago in the, the British Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology showing a statistically significant reduction in intervention and much better outcomes. So, Nick, you've just absolutely outlined what we think the heart of this is. It's about relationships, it's about trust, but it's also the health provider becomes invested in that woman and her partner because you get to like them and get to know them. And we know in everything in life that if we like and know people, we act differently. Uh, to me, it's, it's not rocket science. However, it is producing unbelievably different physical outcomes. And we need, to, we need to elevate women and babies to an important status in our country. And we need government and we need health providers to stop thinking about all of the other things that we get obsessed with and go back to putting women and babies and their partners at the centre of our care. And if we did that and worked outwards, we would have a very different system today and different outcomes. Mm-hmm. Well, that's well spoken, Hannah. Thank you so much for your time and good luck with that trip down to SA. And I hope, and if listeners want to get a little bit more information, I'm sure they can follow your progress. You're very active in the circles of publications across the place. Um, if they want to stay in touch and read a little bit more about the article, it'll be published at 3CR's Wednesday Breakfast page. Facebook page. Oh, and the, sorry, and the website. And the website. <laughs> and just to point out, it's also, I've written a conversation article, um, which is also going to break it down into much sort of easy, more easily understood uh, points. All right, beautiful. We'll post links both to the journal article and the conversation article. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Hannah.
You're tuned in to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Up next, we have David Shearman on the line. Um, he's calling for two major regulatory bodies to hold to account the polluters of both air and water here in Australia. you got to remember, Nanox's a special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy NAIDOC! Welcome to the program, David. Good morning, good to talk to you. <laughs> Lovely to hear your voice. You're, tuning, you're calling in from South Oz, I believe. That's right, that's right. Beautiful. Our previous guest, Wyatt, might be able to meet you in a couple of hours, I believe. She's heading no, from New South Wales across the South I think, I think in, in, you know, 18 hours if she's just leaving yeah. <laughs> Sydney. Yeah. It's, a, it's a mere blink of the eye. But we have you here, um, David, to tell us a little bit about your call along with Doctors for the Environment Australia and many other um, legal and medical NGOs who are calling for a regulated body to be um, charged with safeguarding the climate, wildlife, freshwater and clean air acting as a regulatory body to call and hold account industries. Yes, uh, it, it's a complex situation. I'll try and make it very simple for you. Could you tell us just quickly, before we get right into the heart of it all, just a little bit about your background and what's led you to becoming um, the Honorary Secretary of Doctors for the Environment Australia? Well, despite all the things you said about me, I'm a practical doctor. I mean, I've seen thousands of patients during my life and that's what I like doing best helping people and essentially a lot of the patients we see suffer from illnesses such as uh, cancer of the lung uh, chronic bronchitis aspirin children from conditions which we ought to have under control we ought to prevent them because they're coming from the environment so the secret of medicine today is to prevent these disease happening. There's no reason why people should have severe disease and die because their surroundings have been polluted or the water has been polluted or they're going to suffer from climate change in the future. So Doctors for the Environment worked to educate on this. Uh, we hassle government. We attend inquiries. We try and educate them. Uh, that's our sort of role. And, of course, we write articles in newspapers and journals, and we announce this initiative in a periodical call, a conversation yesterday, and anyone can read what's going on by having a look at that. It's all online. Mm. So that's basically what we do. And we've got uh, thousands of doctors around Australia who work long hours in their practices and then find an hour at the end of the day uh, we call it that extra patient that arrives to help us in the environment. Yes. That's a great image and doctors are very stressed and it gives a little bit more weight to this initiative because it sounds like it calls a lot, 
a lot of doctors and hit something at the heart like it has done for you. Yes. Now, well, Patrick, this initiative isn't just for doctors. It's, it's a combination of lawyers, mm. very distinguished lawyers, have been working on this for two years, including the justice of, of uh, the, the federal court, uh, all the environmental groups, that you, names you would know, 40 of them, ACF, Wilderness, all these people, and doctors. And this is a proposal that has been put together to help protect the environment and save lives. Mm. And is this um, something to do with the Better Laws for Better Planet, yes, a symposium yes. that's happening at the future of Australia's environment? Yes, that's happening today. Yesterday, the lawyers explained how we could set this up legally. Mm. And today, the places you love, which is us, the environmental groups, are meeting to plan ahead. Mm. Yes, we have spoken to that group before. Mm. And does this tie in, David, to what you were calling for, and that's a high-level Commonwealth Environment Commission, along with and acting with the National Environment Protection Authority? Yes, yes. Well, all that, that sounds very complex, but what we're calling for is, is a body that has, has clout, it has the law behind it. Mm. It has scientists behind it who can tell us what could do, what what we should do, rather than this being a political football. And they can tell us what we do to save ourselves in, in fullness of time from polluted air, water, maintaining biodiversity on which our food and water depends. Mm. So all these are part of staying alive, survival for humanity, and they're all subject to government whim, market forces. Essentially, people do what they like with them, and we've got to have that under control. Big Dada, do you know much about the law aspect of things that's being put forward in the symposium? Well, it, it, the, the law that's being put forward is essentially... Uh, a body which would have some legal standing. I mean, you can, unless you're a dictatorship, uh, you can never, you can never be, be sure of keeping something as you want it. Uh, government will always do a few things and tamper with it. But what we're saying is they don't tamper with the Reserve Bank. The Reserve Bank comes out with what need, is needed to maintain the economy each month, interest rates and reports. Nobody actually quibbles with that. They all sort of, um, uh, you know, salute its, uh, its uh, statements and, and take them seriously. And that has, a, that has considerable legal... We want the similar thing to look after you and make sure you're in an environment in which you can survive. Mm. I've noticed that um, there was big parallels called upon within your article with the Reserve Bank, and I can see that that idea to call on that higher authority, so believe for and above the government to get away from that political football that has been happening in short-term politics. Yes. But do you see any foreseeable dangers in using that template carried out in the future? Well, I, I see enormous, I see enormous gains. Uh, for example, if we choose. Uh, biodiversity. Biodiversity means keeping all plants and animals alive because we depend on them. And around Australia, this is in charge of the states. And they clear forests, they clear land, they clear bush. Um, the environment comes last if they want development. 
And this all happens under different regulations in different states, you see. So it's a free-for-all. Um, the only role that the Commonwealth has is to protect threatened species. So if there's some tree frog up a tree which is threatened, it can intervene. But if a bunch of workers are threatened in the Queensland coal mine, it can do nothing about it. So that's the issue, mm. put simply. Yes. So it is that um, you know combination of what state regulations are, and uh, and what the federal government and sometimes things just drop between those two. We don't you know things don't get addressed. Yes. They, well, they don't ad- address. They're not addressed as well for all sorts of reasons. So, for example. Uh, let's choose another state because Victoria has the best system in Australia at the moment. And I'm not going to pillory them on, on anything, but but let's go to let's go to Queensland. I'm sorry, I have to laugh. Um, we've been working on what's been going on on the Ackland coal mine since 2012, and the situation there was appalling in 2012. Now, nothing changed over five or six years, despite seeing the Queensland government, despite reports, despite we said what was going on with health. Nothing changed because it was producing revenue. In 2018, sorry, 17, 2017, it went to the land court. And the land court said what was going on was appalling. They couldn't do it anymore, and it, it banned any further expansion. Now, how could that happen? I mean, that mine and the expansion had been approved by the uh, state government, and it had gone to the federal government, the Commonwealth government, who had rubber-stamped it on the basis of the evidence given by Queensland. Now, that's the sort of thing going on. Yes. Now, we, we have to have regulations which are imposed nationally and are not subject to the whims and needs of state government's revenue and shareholders of companies. Simple as that. Mm. And this is what that body's calling. And if people want to stay up to date with the results of today and get on board, um, where would you best send them, David? Well, if, if you have any doctors who are uh, listeners, then a bit of an advert, come and be our members. So that's the first thing. Secondly, we run a very active website with a news item every day that is real news. It's based on science and on doctors' uh, medical opinion. And that's a news site like many others, and I'm sure yours is, that brings real news to the public. And people can look at that as a member of the public. They can't join Doctors for Environment because... It's not that we want to remain pure as a doctor's group. We find that carries the most sway with government. If, if we speak from a position of authority uh, as doctors. So we're not, we're not being erudite. We're just saying we're a doctor's group. We go to government. We bang the desk. That's how we're staying. And you can read all about us. And if any... Uh, philanthropists or whatever have some money to give away, they can give it to us because we run on our own money. Fair enough. And if people want to stay up to date with the goings-on of the symposium, is there a best place or head to that website and there'll be a Uh, summary? There'll there'll be an article from us in the next two days as a result of it. And if they want to go to the Places You Love website, just Google Places You Love, 
no doubt there will be something in there uh, reporting the meeting and saying what is going to happen. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Dr. David Shearman, for joining us this morning. We will be posting links to your conversation article on our webpage and our Facebook page if you want to stay up to date, listeners out there, and get a quick link. Otherwise, yes. head to those links David has just mentioned. Okay. Happy to speak to you anytime, Patrick. Um, great work you're doing. I've just looked at your site. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> Lovely to speak to you. Thank you. An Exxon oil tanker, a CSR company, faced tough questioning at the company's annual general meeting today from Chernobyl. 11 million gallons of the payouts to workers affected by Tracy, our Wednesday breakfast is where your ears are at. We were just listening to Midnight Oil, Blue Sky Mine. We had David Shearman on the line before that talking about a call by doctors across Australia for a regulatory body to hold account polluters both in the air and in the sky. But up next we have... Well, I mean, the concern about the environment was very present in a conference that was held at the University of Melbourne last week. I went along and uh, the conference was called New Geographies of Global Inequalities and Social Justice, a long name, but uh, one of the issues that came out a lot was the way the extractive industries or tourism or other uh, kinds of... um, uh, industry and, and so-called development uh, is affecting inequality in Australia and in and around the globe. And uh, so the conference aimed to generate some enduring and emerging forms, uh, or sorry, to highlight enduring and emerging forms of inequality, but also to think about and contribute to public debate about how some of these issues could be addressed. So it was, it was a you know, very broad brief for that conference. Professor Anthony Babington is from the University of Melbourne now, but he's also you know, from universities in the States and has done lots of research in uh, Latin America on the extractive industries, on development, on the impact of um, development on um, po- different populations. And... Um, I spoke to him on Sunday. Actually, he was very kind to make time. I was in a cafe in South Melbourne, so if you hear those background sounds of, you know, coffee being it's Melbourne made, authentic. Don't get, Melbourne. don't get confused. It's not Sydney. Do no, 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 love? no, I no. know. I know. Uh, it's kind of <laughs> lovely to be connected to two wonderful cities, I must say. But anyway, remembering that, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago we interviewed Amanda Thomas and we were talking about human geography and what was that. I thought I'd uh, start by asking uh, Professor Babington, what is meant by human geography? And he said, well, there's two ways of thinking about it. It's on the changing relationships between society and environment, or society and nature. And the other focuses on the changing nature of places and the changing nature of relationships among places and among regions, trying to understand what drives so it's changing relationships. So at a global scale, climate change is a change in the relationship between environment and society at a macro level. There's a change in the, in the nature of, the, of flows between social and economic processes and environmental processes leading to changes in temperature, changes in the frequency and magnitude of high magnitude events and unequal patterns of consumption that are caught up in the 
processes driving the release of greenhouse gases, gas emissions. So that's the global level. And then at a, at a subnational level, or at a, at a regional level, the rapid spread of very large-scale oil palm cultivation across large parts of Indonesia over the last couple of decades would be clear change in relationships between society and environment within Indonesia. Again, a clear shift in the relationship between nature and people at a national level that's led to massive transformations of the landscape enabled by patterns of inequality. Certain groups have access to capital to be able to make those large-scale investments. Certain groups have privileged access to political decision-making and policy-making so that they can win, if you will, or elicit changes in rules. What sort of changes in rules? Well, let's switch continents, just to move it around. And my example I'm going to use is political and economic crisis that Brazil has been in uh, over the last several years. That crisis has elicited real economic problems for Brazil. Rates of growth have declined. The Brazilian miracle looks like it's over, or it's certainly no longer a miracle. One of the responses has been to try and speed that part of the economy that depends upon natural resource extraction. So we're talking about soybean cultivation, mineral extraction, hydrocarbons, ranching. Now to do that, producers within the sector, what they have pushed for and are achieving are a rollback of protections for indigenous territory, a rollback of protected areas and the selective de-gazetting of certain protected areas and public investment that will encourage large-scale investment in infrastructure of certain sorts, particularly railway. You know, this is sounding so very familiar here in Australia when you hear the talk about what's happening with the Adani mine. I mean, they're talking about railway, they're talking about water availability and and loss of it. You're talking about Brazil. There's certainly resonances here in Australia. We've just been finishing up some work for a group of foundations, U.S. foundations primarily, who work on some of these issues. What's striking is how that pattern of promoting large-scale investment in resource extraction is a pattern that you see repeated again, and certainly the pattern that characterizes Indonesia's overall strategy and vision of development. When you mentioned uh, the palm oil and the burning, I remember being in Kuala Lumpur a couple of years ago for a conference. It was absolutely covered with smoke. Visibility was very low. They said it was burning in Indonesia, so it's not only Indonesia that's affected. Right, that's true. And it comes from the burning of the forests and particularly the burning of peatlands. You, you both lose the peatlands, and the peatland is a, really a slow burn. It burns and it burns and it burns and it burns. So yeah, the spillover effects of these sorts of, to go back to previous point, these sorts of transformations in relationships between society and environment are very real. They spill over to neighboring countries, but of course they have a global spillover effect because they affect global carbon budgets and so forth. At the beginning of the conference, you talked about new inequalities on top of old inequalities. I'm wondering if you can just give an example of that. I guess if we carry on with those sorts of Brazilian example or the Indonesian example, when you're trying to flexibilize, as the term is often used, in Brazil, flexibilize, or in Latin America, those regulations that previously might have prevented large-scale investment in resource extraction in indigenous territories, that ultimately leads to patterns of investments whose effects are unequal, so in some sense they're new inequalities, because they subject certain groups to the loss of land and not other groups. 
they subject certain groups to the risks of violence and aggression and murder sometimes and not other groups. The economic consequences are unequally distributed as well. But at the same time, they're happening on top of old inequalities. And those older inequalities are ones in which those indigenous peoples or those Afro-Columbian peoples or in other cases those small colonist farmers, forest dwellers, not wealthy, trying to make a living out of rubber tapping. These current changes are adversely affecting groups who've already been adversely affected by prior patterns of political power. And, and in the case of Indonesia, I was talking to a graduate student the other day and she was talking about the case of a community that has tried to resist the oil palm expansion process and so become surrounded by oil palm plantations, which has adverse effects for the community. So these, again, these are communities of people who are already poorer. They were already on the adverse side of the broader pattern of inequality. One of the things that she's noticed over the years and also the community reports is increased problems with rats. And that's because the rats thrive in the oil palm plantations because they feed off the fallen fruit. And then that will have a huge impact on their lives, I'm sure. It's a very, it's a very particular form of inequality. Again, some, some groups are being exposed to the plagues of rats and others not. I'm interested in your current research now, the governance of resource conflicts surrounding the mil- mineral industry and other forms of mining under conditions of climate change. Then you're looking at Latin America, Indonesia and Australia. Or what, are, what are you investigating? The origins of that project, which is probably helpful just to mention briefly, were from, my, from previous work in Latin America. El Salvador has gone through a process that recently culminated in the passage of a law to ban mining in the country. Um, And I was involved in sort of phases of that discussion in collaboration with the Ministry of Environment in El Salvador. And at the core of the arguments that came, including from the Ministry, absolutely from the Ministry, was the notion that El Salvador's water resources, El Salvador's an extreme case, but its water resources are so vulnerable that it, it as a country cannot afford to introduce into the landscape a form of economic activity like mining that would create more risk for those water resources and would use water in a context in which water resources are really constrained. So that was one thing that put on the agenda for me, that experience, this relationship between climate change and mining. Another dimension for a country like El Salvador is climate change also means an exponential increase in the number of hurricane-type storms coming from the Pacific as opposed to the Caribbean. In that sort of context, you can't afford to put tailing ponds across the landscape because you're going to have all these heavy storms coming through and one of those ponds is going to fail. So that was one thing that put this on my agenda. Another was talking to people in Chile and Peru, in the agricultural sector and in the mining sector, in the case of Chile, for example, saying, look, we will also have severe water constraints. They're already... In these countries, the coast is desert, and yet we have an economy that depends upon mining. Something has to change in how we govern the relationship between mining and water, and that's coming both from people from government sector regulating agriculture and also people working in the, in the industry as well. And it's also been a big argument in Australia against the Adani mine, the amount of water that it's going to use, the Great Artesian Basin, uh, other springs that are in that area. And coal mining adds an additional layer to the discussion because it's not just that the mining uses the water or the scale of the mine will damage water or just destroy water sources. It's that the mining itself 
is for a product that then, when burned, releases further greenhouse gases that then aggravate dynamics of global warming. So in the context of those conversations, I put together in a, 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 what was a short proposal, really, uh, to say let's. it would be interesting to take a look at, and it's not that other people are not doing this as well, but to contribute to that work, taking a look at how different actors, government, civil society, community-based, private sector, are anticipating what's coming down the pike, as we'd say in the States, what's coming down the road, responding accordingly. So it's a form of adaptation to climate change, if you like, around how water will be governed so that water resources will be protected. And out of that came the proposal to work in these different countries. Australia really is less new field, it's not field, new field work so much as there's a interviews that would be a source of comparison with what's being debated or going on in Latin America and Indonesia. And we put Indonesia in there primarily for the coal question. So you, Indonesia has a, a substantial coal sector that's growing again in recent years that involves, and here it's a triple whammy, because it's, the coal is all under forest. So to get access to the coal involves first the clearing of the forest, one release of greenhouse gas emissions, and of course displacement of communities, going back to our previous discussions, new inequalities. Secondly, the process of extraction have potentially impacts on water quality and water resources. And third, the resource once extracted releases more greenhouse gases. So the idea would be in Indonesia, it would give a different take on that relationship between mining, climate change and water through the question of coal. Whereas the Latin American cases, with the exception of Colombia maybe, which also has a significant coal sector, the Latin American cases would more be about minerals, so you're not thinking about a product that um, releases greenhouse gas emissions when it's used, although these are products whose extraction involves much more use of water than is the case in coal mining. And that was Professor Anthony Babington from the University of Melbourne. And he was one of the speakers at the opening of the conference, A New Geographies of Global Inequalities and Social Justice, last Thursday. And as I spoke, as I heard him speak, I couldn't help thinking about the connections, that you, as you would have heard, between what's going on with the Carmichael mine in the Galilee Basin. And the same concerns seem to exist, whether it's in, um, you know, in Australia whether it's in Brazil, the uh, extraction of resources as kind of the only model for development. And, uh, of course, uh, you know, David Sherman also is talking about, you know, protecting the environment and, and there's got to be other ways of um, of development and, and doing that work. So that was fantastic to hear, Anthony. And, you know, he, sp- he publishes not only in English but also in Spanish, because he has worked in Latin American countries, and um, yeah, it was it was great to have his insights. And to, next week we'll hear a bit more from him about the role of media in addressing some of these issues. So that was something else he spoke about. Uh, a bit later in the show, we're going to hear from um, Sharon McLennan, who, who also presented at the same conference, and she was talking about what I think some people described the conference as new solidarities. And I'm wondering if at 3CR we're kind of part of a new solidarity in getting the information out. But in this case, the new solidarities was about uh, Cuban doctors who were providing a lot of support in the Pacific for uh, doctors there and medical needs. But that's coming up a bit later. We will also have uh, Fiona Patton joining us in the studio shortly to uh, talk to us uh, uh, about the release or, or the tabling of the inquiry into drug law reform. But before that, we've got a nice tune lined up for you, Locked Up, featuring Briggs and Mariala. 
Ah, great dear Briggs. We're now in the studio, joined by Fiona Padden. Yes, member of the Legislative Council and uh, the leader of Reason Party, formerly the Australian Sex Party. Um, Fiona, welcome to 3CR. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, and thank you for coming in, um, especially after such a big day yesterday. Mm. I mean, uh, I suppose, um, you know, we were in at Parliament and I thought it was... I didn't know how a tabling of a report happens because there's all these parliamentary processes that you don't necessarily know about until, until it happens. And I thought it was going to be a long thing, and it was about six minutes. <laughs> so oh, my God, really? The culmination so of 18 sure. months' effort, yes. trips overseas, uh, 250 submissions, and, what, about a dozen uh, interviews with various different groups, individuals, and... At least, uh, quite yes. a lot of work. Yeah, a lot of work. And then you don't even put it on a table either. They called it a tabling, but there was no table. <laughs> Disappointing, but but um, all, all that aside, but the aside, report is not. Yes, uh, yeah. so it's the uh, it's the report into uh, the Victorian government's inquiry into drug law reform. It was a wide ranging report uh, looking at Victoria's current drug laws and looking. Um, to other jurisdictions to see what they might be doing better and also taking a, a finer tooth comb through our own policies and laws to see if what we're doing is actually achieving the outcomes that it's meant to be achieving. Mm. Um, there's a number of recommendations, 50 recommendations in total uh, in the document. It's a 640-page document um, in total. Yes, but there is the nice 50-page ready Summary, webinar, yes. uh, which people can get online. Uh, mm. And a number of recommendations, including, uh, I mean, some of the buzzy ones that people will hear about, are uh, the looking into regulating and legalising the cannabis market. Mm -hmm. um, the Sniff Dog program is going to get a looking at, um, if the recommendation is followed through with. Uh, pill testing uh, has been uh, put forward as well. But uh, one of the most exciting recommendations, I think, was recommendation number three, uh, and I'll read it out. It's the Victorian government uh, to establish a new Victorian governance structure to oversee and monitor the four pillars drug strategy. It should include a ministerial council on drugs policy comprising ve uh, relevant Victorian ministers responsible for the portfolios of health, mental health, police, education, early childhood education, road safety, corrections, multicultural affairs and families and children and an advisory council on drugs policy comprising experts to advise the Victorian government on drug-related issues and research in Victoria, in addition to individuals who actively work with and support people affected by substance use. And um, that sounds to me like that's really the underpinning of any uh, progressive change because you're actually speaking to these people. You're actually listening to the part where we said, hey, nothing about us without us. Um, talk, tell us about how a this one came about. Absolutely, Nick, and thanks for picking that up. I, I, I too think that that is one of the most important fundamental changes that we, if it's adopted, will make to um, the development of drug policy in Victoria. A, we've changed the three-pillar policy to a four-pillar so the three pillars before were harm reduction. Supply reduction and demand reduction. And as we know, 80% of that money is spent on supply reduction. Which is so policing. Police enforcement. Mm. Uh, but, and treatment kind of sat uncomfortably around harm reduction, also around demand yeah. reduction. Yeah. It, I think it really needed to be separated out. It yes. also enabled us to... Um, to really look at, well, it will, if it's successful, look at, look at demand reduction in, in a much more 
uh, sorry, to look at harm reduction in a much more separate way. But the, the, the council, which I hope will be a statutory body, that means it will be written into our law. I would like to see it written into our Drug Misuses Act so that it, any piece of legislation, any amendments or any work that's done on it must go before that council first. Mm-hmm. We've seen it in other jurisdictions and where we saw it particularly was in the United Kingdom. And the body has a lot of power, but and every single thing they do must go to the ministers and the ministers must respond to it. So the ministers might say, no way, you know, what have you been smoking? However, most of it, but it, it, they do have to respond. It starts it, the conversation. It certainly does. And they bring on, if they're looking at different things that they were looking at when we were there, I think they were looking at expanding their heroin-assisted assisted, uh, tre- treatment programs. Um, and, they just, and they brought on experts in that field. And that's something we've seen missing from the development of drug policy um, almost entirely. Um, I think it was about 10 or 15 years ago uh, that there there used to be advisory bodies, um, at at least at the Commonwealth level, and they were defunded. They were taken apart. And now we've got a a disparate sector of um, AOD treatment, of harm reduction organisations, of all these organisations that they talk to each other, but there's not... There's not really, uh, you know, they don't have to be involved in in uh, in, in the forming of policy and laws. Uh, I mean, with the medically yeah. supervised injecting centre, the only reason that we saw experts involved with that is because they were the ones that pushed to make it happen. You know, yeah. it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have yeah. happened otherwise. Well, that's right. And we, I mean, we set up that campaign for that and got the experts involved and got that campaign going. And then, um, yes, and that was successful. Yes, I, I agree with you. And I think it. You know, I'm, I might be being way too optimistic, but I think it will assist in taking some of the politics out of drug policy. So when you have that independent body there um, recommending to government, it it doesn't mean that the government's making up their own policies as they go along. So it means that you you're less likely to get some of those knee jerk reactions that you that we do get um, in in drug policy. So I, I do hope that it. it provides that expert advice but also uh, does just takes takes it sets it apart slightly from the the politics of being tough on crime and hard on drugs and on that note Fiona how was it received by both the parties um, on that tabling could you get a sense of how they took that on board um no not really. well I mean you could see some people in the in the chamber um Mouthing obscenities at, <laughs> at the tabling. No, <laughs> they didn't. Yes, they did. I'm afraid. <laughs> um, yeah, it's. However, it was a bipartisan support uh, report, so it got support from Labor and Great. Liberal uh, in the in the committee process. I think it's not. I would have loved the report to have been slightly bolder and, mm. and probably you know gone out there a bit harder. However. To get Liberal and Labor members, and I have to say Conservative members from both sides, um, agreeing to this report is a good start. It's excellent, I think. If, if you have that and you're saying you do because it was bipartisan, I mean, that's the only way that we can move forward on such a both contentious and both emotional and also political football, as you've said. A- absolutely. And I think what it also means, I mean, going forward, 
hopefully we can continue that bipartisan approach. And what we saw when we went to other jurisdictions is you had to have that bipartisan approach. So whether it was the Canadian Health Minister you know, opening up, what, 30 supervised injecting centres in the last 12 months, that had bipartisan support. Portugal decriminalising um, use and possession, that had bipartisan support. It ha- you have to have that, really, to make any fundamental changes. And back in the 1980s, during the HIV epidemic, we had bipartisan absolutely. support. Absolutely. And in fact, yes, absolutely. And that's a really great example of where Australia led the way in harm reduction by being bold, and they could be bold because it was bipartisan. I've um, I, It's been less than 24 hours since the report has been tabled, so mm. I haven't had a good chance to you know go through it yet, but um, I have spoken to some people who have read the summary and have already heard some people being critical and, and, right. and uh, pointing out that they feel like it's not gone far enough. They feel mm. like there could have been bolder things said uh, in it, but um, I think what you're just talking about, about bipartisan support, yeah. that's what I've been trying to get through to people, that this... This is a this is a tool that that we can use now that these organisations can use now. It doesn't mean all the individuals and organisations need to just go with what the recommendations say. You can push further um, as the individuals and organisations, but you've got something there to to lean back on that's got uh, a huge amount of support yeah. and a huge amount of um, you know research behind it. Eighteen yeah, months worth. Absolutely. Now, I think one of the other uh, really positive aspects of this of this report is that. When you read through, so when you read the the rationale that we make for those recommendations, yeah, those recommendations could have been bolder because the rationale leads you to think that it, it could be bolder. So I um I would encourage people uh, to 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 read the chapters and I mean there's a lot there's a lot in there and it it will be I I think it'll be a future textbook because. It goes through all of our international treaties. It goes through all of our legislation. It goes through all of um, state and federal drug policies. It, you know, it is very in depth. And as I say, you know, when you read the chapter on cannabis regulation, I mean, probably if you read it, you'd go, "Well, there's an argument for legalising it." But the report, but the recommendation, yeah. because this is the art of compromise didn't go that far. Mm. Well, the world is changing around drug policy. There's so many yeah. great progressive examples, like you mentioned Portugal, which de- has decriminalized all drugs now. I mean, we have such great material to draw on. And as a country that has been the leader in the past, wouldn't it be fabulous if Australia kind of started becoming a leader again? Yep, yep. And, and look, I, I take um, I take some comfort and take, and take, optim- and, and take hope out of the fact that we did get a supervised injecting centre up. Mm. And that means that to do that, for a government to do that, they have to recognise that drug use is a health issue. Now, because that is what a supervised injecting centre does. So that was a step in the... a very serious, significant step in the right direction. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful that this will enable them... You know, maybe it's baby steps for some people, but but for... But for many politicians, these are giant leaps. Absolutely. Um, the, a, a few of the things that I'm excited by in it is that the Sniffer Dog program is going yeah. to get, uh, uh, well, 
if, if the recommendation is followed through with, we'll get a looking at. Um, at the moment, uh, it doesn't appear to have much oversight whatsoever. It just happens. Uh, we don't even have legislation that guides it like they do in New South Wales, mm. um, where they've uh, also recommended that they don't continue that program. Uh, there's also a recommendation to... I think it's to decriminalise, but the wording <laughs> in the recommendation is very careful, and I think um, this is what you're talking about, to get that bipartisan support. It says to, to maintain all the current drug offences, but to move the offences of use and possession into a health or social field. So is that maintaining it, though, or is that yeah, it, is that different? It, yeah, it was, different. It, was, it was very careful wording there. And, and that was interesting because when we went overseas, I mean, and, I, and my colleagues who went overseas, you know, did not have the same experience around drug policy that, that we do. Uh, so this, a lot of this was very new to them. Um, but they went to Portugal and they were really impressed. They could see how that worked, but they couldn't say decriminalisation. Uh, right. <laughs> so we looked at what we were doing and we looked at what other places were doing and, it, and effectively we do have decriminalisation um, through our diversion programs but our diversion programs are discretionary yes, and so right. some people yeah. have access to it, other people don't. You know, sometimes the police probably don't even use use the diversion program, they just whack them on the back of the head and say, don't do it again. You silly bugger. You yeah. silly bugger. <laughs> um, I've had that. Yeah. <laughs> So what? So by codifying that diversionary program, taking the discretion out of it, it actually does mean that you do not, you will not be criminalised for your drug use or your drug possession. We're chatting with uh, Fiona Patton, member for the Legislative Council uh, and also leader of the Reason Party, about the tabling of the inquiry into drug law reform, which occurred yesterday in Parliament. Um, now, there's six months that the government's allowed to uh, respond. What's the what's the process from here? It will be it will be interesting. I mean, I think I intend to be doing a lot of lobbying to ensure that the majority of the recommendations are supported, at the very least in principle supported, but um, but it will be up to the government. And it's an election year. And, you know, I think what we need to convince governments that this, to be tough on crime, you need to be smart on crime. Yes. And, you know, arresting people for a possession, for, for, for the possession of a joint or a pill is not smart on crime. Um, so it's nothing on crime. It's nothing on crime. Really, it's nothing on crime. It's dumb on crime. So yeah, by cha- so if we can um, keep that understanding, keep that pressure on governments to understand that to be tough on crime means to be, they need to be smarter on it, and they need to look at ways to reduce crime, which is stopping people from having problematic drug use in the first place. Yeah, and to look at the evidence. Yeah. Wow, that's a good thought. Yeah. And, and finally, before we uh, wrap it up this morning, there was an announcement, I believe, yesterday uh, in relation to the Medically Supervised Injecting Centre mm. and the board that overlooks it. Uh, former Victorian Premier Jeff Kennett was to be uh, overseeing this and he's uh, he's just decided that he's not going to anymore. Um can you tell us a little bit about what's yeah, happened? Yeah, that was really disappointing. And I um, I tweeted back to Jeff Kennett last night that I was very disappointed that he had decided Good. to play <laughs> politics over people's lives. 
he came straight back at me and saying, Fiona, you know that I have supported the supervised injecting centre, which he has, and he campaigned for it and campaigned on behalf of it and was very effective in that. Um, and he said, I just can't work with a government that rorts rada, rada, rada. So this is about the uh, ALP election rorting yeah, issue. Yeah, yeah. yeah, which you know is a very serious issue and we will be debating it at length today in Parliament. Uh, however, I, I think... I believe that the pre- that the former premier, Mr. Jeff Kennett, could have should have put that aside and looked at the greater good of what that supervised injecting centre was doing, and it is independent of the government. It's not like the medically supervised injecting centre is a, a labour thing. Mm. Um, I, I guess they no, no, no they, had be, they had way, to be pulled it? kicking and screaming to that That's for sure. <laughs> to that That's trial. For sure. Yeah, something missing in that argument, I think. Thank you very much for joining us this morning on uh, 3CR Breakfast, Fiona, and we look forward to seeing the progress of this report and the recommendations hopefully implemented. Thanks, everyone. Yeah. It's 3CR Breakfast. Are you doing the right thing? It up? Marxism 18 is Australia's biggest radical left-wing conference, happening March 29th to April 1st in Melbourne. The conference will feature founding editor of Jacobin magazine, Bhaskar Sunkara, Australian writer Helen Razor, Palestinian activist Huwaida Araf, and films celebrating 50 years since the struggles of 1968. Join radicals and activists for political discussion in over 100 sessions across four days. Tickets start at $25 and are available at marxismconference.org. Red Flag Press is a 3CR supporter. 3CR Wednesday Breakfast is where you are at and your ears. We just had Fiona Patton in the studio talking about a table sitting that happened yesterday. We now have some very interesting news coming from Judith. Uh, Well, coming from the conference on new geographies of global inequalities and social justice. So one of the presentations at the conference was by Dr. Sharon McLennan, who's a lecturer in the School of People, Environment and Planning at Massey University. And I, and I love the fact that people are in that title uh, in New Zealand. And she's conducting research on how Cuban medical cooperation contributes to health and development in the Pacific. Um, so we caught up at the end of the conference, and I wanted to know how she became interested in the work of Cuban doctors in the Pacific. I was a nurse before I became a lecturer in development studies, I'm doing voluntary work in Central America. So I've always had an interest in global health. And when I did my master's research many years ago, I was looking at medical volunteers in Central America, and I came across this idea that there were Cuban doctors. I had no idea that Cuban was sending doctors overseas. End of 2016, I was in a conference in Wellington, New Zealand. We had a panel there of Latin American ambassadors to New Zealand. They were asked to talk about the links between their country and New Zealand and the wider Pacific. And most of them got up and talked about trade and economic links and so forth. And the Cuban ambassador got up and quite informally started talking about medical aid and how many doctors Cuba was sending into the Pacific. And a light bulb kind of went in my head. I'm like goodness there's Cuban doctors in the Pacific I need to know more about this and this funding round was coming up I decided I would put an application in I was successful. Are there many Cuban doctors working in the Pacific? Not necessarily in terms of numbers but in terms of the influence and proportion within the medical profession in in the Pacific Islands so 
So initially they uh, started in Timor-Leste. After the Civil War there were something like 46 doctors in the entire country. And within a few years, the Cuban doctors coming in tripled the number of doctors in the country. Um, and they obviously had a big influence on the rebuilding of the health system in Timor. From about the mid-2000s, Cuba also started negotiating agreements with other Pacific Island countries. And also we have Pacific Island students training at a medical school in Cuba. So the program is active in Tuvalu, Fiji, Solomon Islands, Kiribati, Nauru and others. While the numbers aren't huge, some places maybe only two or three Cuban doctors, maybe a dozen medical students. And some places they're much larger. In Solomon Islands we've got over 100 medical students gone to Cuba. But when you think about the size of Pacific Island countries, those fortunately that's quite a large number of doctors who are either Cuban or trained in Cuba and coming back. So people who live in the, those specific islands are invited to, to go to Cuba to train as doctors. Yes, so the Cuban government works alongside uh, the Pacific Island governments and comes to an agreement as to what, the, what exactly is going to be in the programme. Pacific Island students who go to Cuba, they spend a year doing Spanish language training and pre-med, and then they spend six years as a medical student in Cuba, and then they come back to work in their home communities in the Pacific. Well, six years is what it would take a, a doctor to train in Australia as well, so it's pretty uh, vigorous and intensive training. It is. It's, it is intensive training, and it's very difficult. Um, you, these students, they get a full scholarship to go to Cuba, so they don't pay their airfares there, they don't pay any tuition fees, they get uh, a board and, and food, so they don't pay anything, but they don't get to come home. So they spend seven years away from home to be able to do this. And they do it in a second language. And they learn a second language to be able to do it. They learn Spanish and they become you know, fluent in medical Spanish, which I imagine is quite a challenge. Indeed. And, uh, when, and when they do come back, when they finish their training... They come back home and they have to do an internship. Uh, most of them are six months to a year in Fiji or in their home country uh, doing a bit of extra training, a bit of bridging to uh, get them uh, able to work within their home context. Um, at the moment, the first graduates have only come back in the last two or three years, so we'll, we'll see what impact that they have. There's been some criticism. We're very aware that um, some of the doctors... Cuban-trained doctors have been criticised for having language issues. As you say, if you train in Spanish, then your medical, your medical training is in Spanish, then you have difficulty sometimes communicating in, in English or in, in your local language about medical issues. Um, and there's also been some concerns about this level of skills, um, which is being addressed through the internship programme, but it's something that I'm quite interested in exploring in this research as well. Right. And what motivates Cuba? Because it's quite a, um, I mean, I think you said in your presentation there were more Cuban doctors than the doctors from Médecins Sans Frontières. There, um, Cuba sends more actual doctors, personnel, to developing countries. The Médecins Sans Frontières, the Red Cross and UNICEF. So those three major organisations do have some doctors on the ground, but there are more Cuban doctors working in the developing world. Than, than from those organisations. So that when you say the developing world, that's beyond the Pacific, of course. Yes, so there's you know, some thousands working, particularly in, um, in Latin America. Obviously, that's, that's uh, Cuba's region of interest. Um, but there are Cuban doctors across places in Africa, um, Middle East, all around the world. 50,000 of them 
around the world at the moment. That's amazing. So what's the motivation? What drives Cuba to do this, to provide this service? A sense of solidarity, I think. Uh, when Cuba, I mean, with the Cuban Revolution, obviously there was this um, anti-colonial sentiment of, you know, becoming an independent nation, not being dependent on others. And as time has gone on, they've wanted to share that with, with the rest of the world. And not in a revolutionary way, although perhaps initially it was, but in a manner of being countries of the global south together, supporting each other. So there's always some sort of reciprocity in, in the agreements. For some countries there's a financial incentive, for others um, it may be more political and in international institutions. What do you mean by the global south? It's a bit of a catch-all term for developing countries. So it's countries that are not part of the global north. So the global north is North America, Northern Europe, um, and ironically included in that is Australia and New Zealand as richer countries. And, and then there's the rest of the world, which are predominantly located in, in the southern hemisphere, So which is why we call, why called the global south. It's not a very geographically accurate term, but it's one that's commonly used. So now with your new project that you're, you're just starting, how long is it going to go? Three years. Three more years. The first year I'll be concentrating on learning more about the Cuban side of things. I'll be going to Cuba, learning about um, the Cuban approach to health, the Cuban approach to development, um, and talking to medical students who are already in Cuba, uh, Pacific Island students in Cuba. And then the second year I will be looking to do case studies in Kiribati and Solomon Islands, um, where there are either Cuban doctors present or Cuban uh, medical trained doctors. So c- students from those countries have come back already and are practicing, so I would like to follow them up. And what do you hope to find out? Like, I imagine you have an overall objective for this research. What is it you're wanting to know? Broadly, I'm really interested in the impact of the program. I mean, when you're talking about places where uh, Cuban doctors and Cuban trained doctors have doubled the number of doctors in a country there's some there's going to be some sort of impact so I'm look I'm interested in the impact on health but I'm also interested in the way in which the Cuban model which is quite different to the western model of health relates to Pacific ideas about health and health care and how it relates to health care systems already present in those countries. How is the Cuban system different? The Cuban system is premised on the idea that health is a right and that, doc, that medicine is a service. So rather than, uh, doctors aren't, don't do private practice in Cuba, for example, which has been criticized by some, but this is the way that they're trained, the medicine is a service and that you, you work with your community, that's what you do as a doctor. And, and healthcare is a right, everybody should be able to have access to good health services free, at no cost. Um, and this is quite different to the kind of model of healthcare we have here which is more of a commodity which is something that you pay for and that the doctor receives significant payment for and so this is quite quite different to to the way in which you know most of us have experienced healthcare and I think the way in which it's supported through our Australian and New Zealand aid programs um, into the Pacific as well. And that was Dr. Sharon McLennan uh, from Massey University in New Zealand. And it sounds like an interesting project to follow. And I had no idea there are so many Cuban doctors out in the world helping um, developing nations. So, yeah, great to hear. Wasn't it um, uh, Fidel Castro's daughter? 
Is that right? No, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, she's the uh, she's the queen of uh, Cuban doctors around the world. Uh, well, not the queen, look. She's just um, been travelling around. She was in uh, Australia a few years ago talking about um, them wanting to just get healthcare out there. So, yeah, it's... Um, it's it's uh, great Fidel to hear. Castro's and doctor. particularly, you know, Timor-Leste, which so much struggled at the beginning. And then they've, you know, really increased the number of doctors in that country and helped set up the system. Mm. 3CR Breakfast. On the line now we have Kate Aubrey, uh, former Wednesday Breakfast um, uh, co-host. Kate, welcome to the program. Good morning, good morning. Hi, guys. Nice chatting. Good to have your voice on on the air again. Um, (laughs) Now, you're up in uh, southeast New South Wales, the the beautiful south coast there. Um, And uh, what was it, about a week ago or a week and a half ago, there were some pretty significant fire events, not just for south coast New South Wales, but also uh, in Victoria, southwest uh, Victoria was on fire. Uh, Many farmers have uh, lost lots of uh, of, um, land and property and, and their animals and uh, all of that, but um, you also had some pretty serious fires in the Tarthra Bega sort of yeah. area, Kate. Can you uh, tell us about what, how, yeah. how it all go? Yeah, sure thing. Um, so, yeah, I moved up here and I live um, on Dr. George Mountain Road, which is on the top or above Tarthra, and, um, and I started to see on the fire app the little fires popping up and they were out of control. And then they went to yellow, which was sort of act and leave. And then I started seeing <clears throat> smoke come up and over the mountain. Oh dear. And I was like, oh, I should probably be alarmed right now. Um, oh, yes. And we were packing. Yeah, yeah. We were wrapping up to leave the block anyway. Um, but my partner, Jason, was a little bit more relaxed than me. And, um, and then a four-wheel drive came scooting down the driveway. And he was a, a previous fire captain and said to us, hey, guys, you should probably pack and, and leave now. Um, and that's what he was doing. He was coming back to grab his passport. He was a neighbour as well. Um, and he said, and when you leave, bring a chainsaw. Jeez. And so, <laughs> because there'll probably be trees down. Yeah. And, um, and, and I left before Jason because um, I was, um, I, d- I just packed up a bit quicker. And sure enough, there was a tree down and I couldn't get over it. Mm-hmm. So... I went back to the block, um, and then we left together, and he forgot the chainsaw. (laughs) So it was like, we were like the worst people leaving during a fire, like the worst. And yeah, it was like abysmal. And then on the way out, another four-wheel drive was coming up our road, and they stopped, and we moved the tree out of the way. We got off. I mean, there wasn't flames coming up, and the wind was going the opposite direction, so our side wasn't being hit. Um, but people were leaving, and, and um, yeah. Oh, and and the wind was going though. Uh, from from what I've seen, toward uh, the other side, we haven't got much time left. But just quickly, I've seen some pictures. Yeah. Uh, the Tarthra Township Tarthra. is on the um, on the coast there. How how far to the coast did it get? How how close to the to the beach did it get? Oh, pretty close. So I've been down just on the weekend, and I was helping a lady um, in her backyard. So and her backyard borders the state forest, and it was quite crazy. The state forest. Is completely burnt, but her whole street is fine. The fire has ripped around, gone down a gully and jumped over. And it's just like, it's so unpredictable, but it's just jumped into the crowd and just taken out certain streets and certain houses. And the ones bordering, like I'm sure there's areas bordering the state forest, but this particular street, Wildlife Drive I was on, um, the houses right backing onto the fires were fine. And they just jumped. And that's just, that's what it does. It's so unpredictable. The community spirit is pretty high. 
Um, like, there's definitely sadness, but everyone's trying to get on with it. Everyone's encouraging people to come for Easter. Um, everything's open. All the main buildings are fine. It's just there's just a li- there's obviously a little bit of sadness, but everyone's pulling together to help each other. Um, and no, there were no lives that were lost, and I totally think that was the community spirit. I mean, two people stopped to you know help us get out of our block, and we weren't even in danger. So. I know for a fact in Tathra, everyone had each other's back mm. um, and people got out and the ones that stayed, um, stayed to fight. Mm. Yeah. Kate, thanks for uh, being with us this morning. We are out of time, but uh, make sure yeah. uh, everyone to uh, go and take a holiday on South Coast New South Wales and say hello. And get around that community spirit. Lovely. Thanks so much, Kate. <laughs> thanks, Kate. Thanks, guys. See you. Yeah. You've been listening to Wednesday Breakfast. Up next is Stick Together. We've had some lovely guests. If you want to head to um, the 3CR website, you can do so and go to the Wednesday Breakfast page to catch a rerun of the show or any of the catalogue. Also head to the podcast channels and find Wednesday Breakfast there. But until next week... (laughs) Wobbly. (laughs) Wobbly old... Hey, hey, maybe that's a good just moment to just say 3cr.org.au. If you want to donate to 3CR and help our wobbly studio, get onto it. <laughs> <laughs>